Americans. But one of the things that was really drummed into us in that setting as well was having a um, spiritual core, believing that there was something bigger than you, believing that you had a connection to it, and that beyond anything else, you could rely on it. You could rely on it. The song was Only Believe. And that song has never left me. And the words were just uh, repetitive. Only believe, only believe. All things are possible, only believe. Only believe, <laughs> only believe. All things are possible, only believe. And Thanza was, do you believe? Do you believe? All things are possible, do you believe in? You ended with a resounding, yes, I believe. Yes, I believe. All things are possible. Yes, I believe. Which is why I think I came up with the believe the believe that word <laughs> kind of resonated with me when I started the Hey there, everybody. Welcome to episode 29 of Contemplate This. I am your host, Tom Bushlack, and my guest this time is Julius Anthony. Julius is the founder and president of St. Louis Black Authors of Children's Literature and the Believe Project. He's an author, an educator, and an early childhood literacy expert. Did you know that a child's reading ability by the end of third grade is a major predictor of that child's long-term success. I didn't know that. I learned that from Julius. He certainly knows it, and he's doing something about it. By partnering with Scholastic, Ikea, our local Nine Network News, Ready Readers, We Stories, and other groups, he's working to create these literacy labs that are focused particularly on providing access to books and literature for young children of color, who often don't see themselves represented in many of the main characters in children's literature. So he helps to expose them to that literature and provide a safe, almost home-like environment for kids to snuggle up with a book and just open their minds through that way. Um, Julius has impressive credentials. I mentioned a few of them at the beginning of the interview, and I will certainly post them all on the show notes page. But the most important thing to know about Julius is that he has a massive heart. I have had the honor and the pleasure of knowing Julius for the past several years and becoming friends with him and seeing just what an incredible, dedicated, passionate, and intelligent, rising local and I think probably soon national leader uh, beyond the St. Louis region. Um, again, the list of his full credentials is on the show notes page along with links to a brand new public television show that he's doing with our nine network news for young readers. But anyone can watch those videos, and I will link to them. You'll definitely want to check that out, especially if you have kids who are in that phase of learning the joy of reading. So the show notes page are found at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 29. That's the word episode and then two nine with no spaces. So again, thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 29. Now, as I've been doing these interviews and developing some of my own projects along the way, I've really discovered that um, my passion and joy is found in helping others explore that sweet spot where the depth of a contemplative practice sort of flowers and gives way outwardly in wise and compassionate leadership 
just like Julius and really all of the people I've interviewed on Contemplate This live every single day. So with that in mind, I would like to invite you to join a new Facebook group. Uh, It's called The Centered and Purposeful Leader. It's entirely free. Uh, If you join, you get access to videos and posts and interviews and lots more and community about everything from dealing with stressful thoughts, learning simple contemplative practices to keep you centered all day and every day, Um, simple ideas for letting go of distracting thoughts or limiting beliefs that might come up and hold you back, and lots, lots more. So I'll put a link to that Facebook group, and it's free for you to join in the show notes page at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 29. Again, uh, other ways that you can find the group, if you go to thomasjbushlack.com forward slash Facebook group, again, it's all one word with no spaces, uh, thomasjbushlack.com forward slash Facebook group. Uh, that will take you to a link that you can go and request to become a member and submit your request. And if you do that, uh, maybe put a note in there that you found out about it through the podcast, and I will make sure to let you in the group right away and give you access to all of those great resources and a supportive community along the way. All right. So as we build that community, Let's get right into my interview with Julius Anthony. Welcome, everybody. I am Tom Bushlack, your host for Contemplate This, and I am here on episode 29 with Julius B. Anthony. Julius is the founder and president of St. Louis Black Authors of Children's Literature and The Believe Project. He's enjoyed more than 20 years as an early childhood and elementary education professional. He's served as a classroom teacher, a principal, a director of curriculum and instruction, and adjunct professor. Throughout his career, Julius has enjoyed writing motivational poems and short stories for his students and serving as a fierce advocate of literacy-based pre-K through 12 education. Uh, Just to name one highlight, in October of 2014, Julius published his first children's book entitled Me, 10 Poetic Affirmations, which debuted as the National Black Child Development Institute's annual conference in Detroit, Michigan. So there's a lot more I could say, uh, but I'll post all the good stuff on the show notes page and you can check it out for yourself. But uh, welcome and really glad to have you here, Julius. It's great to be here, Tom. Thanks for inviting me to have this wonderful conversation. Of course. So do you want to fill out your intro there with a little bit more about what you're up to these days? Well, um, Like you shared, I'm the founder and president of St. Louis Black Authors of Children's Literature. And our mission essentially is to ensure all children are confident and competent readers by the end of third grade. This is really important because the research suggests that when children are successful readers in third grade, then they tend to do better in school Those are the kids that have a higher potential of making it to 12th grade, and they have a higher potential of entering college or or university um, once they've graduated from 12th grade. And these are the people or the children who will grow to be adults that will successfully navigate life. And so it's our intention to ensure that all kids 
are equipped with good reading skills and that they are successful readers so that we can have thriving adults. Um, we also think that uh, Black children's literature is a definitive strategy for ensuring that Black children particularly are successful readers by the end of third grade. And so our organization has developed various programming to ensure that um, Black children are just that. And if we look at the current research, especially locally, 70 to 75% of Black children in third grade annually fail our state mandated exam. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's unconscionable. You know, that's, that's not good enough. And so our organization um, is here to disrupt that reality and to change it and to make sure that those children too get the things that they need to be successful readers. Wow. Um, yeah, and, and this is coming at uh, you know an auspicious moment in our culture and our awareness of inequality. Um, working in healthcare, we're more aware of inequalities, racial inequalities and access to care, and of course education being a big part of that. So um, how did you find your way into that space and, and come to create, um, which came first? Was it the St. Louis children, black children, oh, I, sorry, I'm butchering it. <laughs> St. Louis. <laughs> right, St. Louis, um, black authors of children's literature. There you go. That's our core organization. Okay. The Believe Project is a program or entity under that organization. And okay. so, yeah, one of the ways that we try to ensure that black children particularly have access to black children's literature as this strategy for improving reading proficiency is we build these literacy labs. That's what the Believe Project is all about. We build literacy labs and community centers and schools. At the core of those spaces are a thousand books and 80% of those books um, are black children's literature. We have been able to open four spaces and in all of them, we have more than 3,500 books in those spaces. Mm. Um, we have this partnership uh, with Scholastic, um, Nine Network and PBS Kids, Ikea, uh, Ready Readers and We Stories. And they have come together with us, joined us to support this effort. Um, other things in that space, um, we have technology in that space that's given by PBS Kids. We have wonderful furniture from Ikea. So the spaces are filled with um, adult-sized chairs that are very comfortable and comf comfy couches and tables and all of those kinds of things because we want to make sure that children um, psychologically make the connection that what you do in this space you can do at home. So we didn't want to really make this kind of kiddie classroom space. We wanted it to be a space where they felt at home. Um, and so that's what the furniture reflects. The folks at Ikea um, loaned their design team to come into those spaces and work out how that should look and to suggest the most appropriate furniture to make that happen. Um, 
PBS Kids has the Anchor Learning Program. It's an experiential program. Kids get free books through it. They get free PBS Kids Play Pass to take home with them that's loaded with eBooks and literacy games. They get a free PBS Kids Fire Stick so they can download all the PBS educational programming on a smart TV or a computer at home. Um, and then our authors, because our organization works with a consortium of local authors who have all published works themselves. They go into those spaces, read their books, kids get free autographed copies of their books as well. So it's a phenomenal program. There's so much more to it. Um, but the whole goal is to encourage kids to fall in love with we don't take the explicit reading approach because we believe that that is the responsibility of the school. That's not our responsibility. Mm. Schools should be uh, facilitating a good, explicit teaching and learning program around reading. Our goal is for kids to fall in love with books and to fall in love with reading. But you can't do that if you're not connected to the reading, if you're yeah. not connected to books. And the best way, as all of us know, especially as adults, you pick the books that you like. You know, you pick the books that are interested to you, interesting to you, books that have images of people that look like you. And unfortunately, Black children aren't in learning spaces where they get to see themselves in books in the year 2020. Think about that. The research suggests that less than 6% of the text that all children in public education in America are exposed to tell stories about the black experience, black people, black wow. children, black families, less than 6%. And honestly, I think that's high. Yeah. <laughs> I think that that's extra high. And, and particularly in communities that serve black children. Right. Well, and I also wonder, um, you know, what percentage of that 6%, I don't know if you know this or not, but mm -hmm. how much of that is highly stereotyped, right? Uh, probably a lot of it. And yeah. I think most of it is literature that reflects historical figures, literature mm. that reflects Dr. King, Rosa Parks, you know, folks like that, but they don't tell everyday stories about the black experience you know black children go to the zoo we <laughs> so, have a children's picture book with a black kid going to the zoo right you know we we do all the same things that everybody else does but when those stories are read in classroom settings across america the people in those stories aren't black children or black mm. or a black mom or a black dad it's the majority culture. Yeah. And that's a problem. That's when we're talking about inequity. That's when we're talking about systemic racism in the educational system. Yeah. And so that begins the process of kids disconnecting from the learning because they don't see themselves as having a place in it. And essentially they're rendered invisible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> think about that from an emotional, a spiritual place. They're basically invisible. Yeah. They see more books about animals speaking like humans 
are cars and trains acting like humans than a person that looks like them. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, we, we have to do something about that. And our organization is designed to do that. Yeah. Well, and I love the depth of intentionality around all the things that you're talking about. So, um, I mean, we've had previous conversations, so I know some of this, but some of it's new too, like the, the intentionality about making the space feel like a home yeah. um, and, and how that connects on that emotional level and yeah. also recognizing that your, your goal isn't to teach literacy directly but to connect to the passion. And I always find, you know, once the passion is there, then people become self-taught, right? And, and, and what they hear from their teacher will, will connect more. And so there's that piece, but then also the intentionality around wanting to build um, a, a, a literature that reflects people of color so that kids see, you know, stories that, that normalize their experience. Yeah. Absolutely. So powerful. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's part of the intention. Um, you mentioned the point about the space being a space that where a kid feels like they're at home. Um, the other intentionality with that is when most black children go into a public school learning space, the moment you walk in the building, you're told what to do. Mm. You're told what to do from the moment you walk in until the bell rings for you to go home. If you want to stand up, you have to be told to stand up. If you want to sharpen your pencil, you have to get permission to sharpen your pencil. If you want to take the stuff from your lunch, that you finish with. You can't go throw it away until an adult tells you you can get up and go throw it away. And that kind of space, what we're essentially doing are, is um, training children to not have their own agency mm. for learning, yeah. for thinking, for doing, for being. And so one of the things that we insist in terms of the spaces that we're building this Believe Project, the facilities that house these spaces, they have to sign an MOU and agree that that space will be called a yes space. Mm. That means that when children go into that space, it's theirs. It mm. no longer belongs to the adult. It belongs to the kid. And the kid is able to choose whatever book they want to choose, even if they can't read it. If it's the one they chose, it's the one they chose. They can like the pictures, they can like the words, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It could be, uh, and we have books in those spaces, even though we target K through three, we have books in those spaces that go up through eighth and ninth grade. And that's intentional. Because a lot of our kids see their older siblings reading these thick books. So they may see their mom or dad reading these thick books. And they think that that's when you're really reading, when you get a book like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so it's about just having the experience with the thick book. That's you know so what cool. I'm saying? Turning the pages, smelling the book, whatever. You know, it's about the experience. Yeah. And um, 
we want children to build their own agency. That's why we give them these free books to take home. We give them these play pads because we can't always rely on an adult being with them at home to continue the literacy process. So children are going to have to build that piece for themselves and they can do it. Children are doing it every day in America in certain spaces, but in a typical rural or urban school building that primarily serves black children, that's not the way that they facilitate instruction. It's mm. all about control. It's, a it's very fascinating that, I mean, you're, you're not just disrupting literacy at that point, right? I mean, you're, you're disrupting education yeah. um, in, in a good way, right? Yeah. Um, it almost reminds me a little bit of what I just because I'm slightly more familiar with it is like the Montessori model, right? Of like creating spaces where kids engage their own questions and then giving them the tools to do it and then supporting them, but giving them that space. Absolutely. We call it a constructivist model, allowing children to construct their own learning based on where they are at that point. Yeah. And um, there are all kinds of successful schools that are doing it. I think there is this thinking that black children can't do it, which is systemic racism. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, yes, black children can do it. Well, and it becomes, it becomes sort of that self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If, if as a system, we hold that belief that black children can't do it, yeah. And we educate to that belief and then it affirms it because we yeah. don't actually set them up to be empowered. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. When the reality is that it's the, if we change the systemic yeah. processes around it, then people, the children yeah. adapt and grow in the way that they can. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that didn't just start. This is how public education was set up. It wasn't really set up for black children to be successful like most systems that we have in our country. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, we exactly. laugh, but it's, it's, no, but it's just, true. And yeah. we're terribly aware of it right now. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And so in 2020, things have got to change. They've got to change. And we intend to be part of that change movement. Well, you certainly are. Um, oh man, there's so many things I want to ask, but um, Let's back up a little bit. So how did you get passionately engaged in early childhood education and literacy? And because and, I mean, you, you've got a lot of like chops and, and research and thought behind all of the intentionality in there. Honestly, it was a God thing because it was not my intention to be an early childhood teacher. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't my intention to even go into education when you know, I thought about what I would do when I was in college. Um, my mom was an educator. My dad was a Baptist minister in part. And then he also was what was called then a porter at Central Hardware Store in um, Bridgeton, Missouri. His entire career in St. Louis, he was at, he was there. And, um, which is considered like a maintenance person. Okay. So professional life, that's what he did. But in his 
what we say his real life, the real him was this Baptist minister. They had eight children and all eight of us are either an educator or we are Baptist ministers and some <laughs> of us both. So oh, wow. we just kind of went into those paths. I am kid number seven. So by the time I came along, I was like, I don't want to be a preacher nor a teacher. I want to be <laughs> Yeah, so what did you, what was your goal? What was your, to be what an did attorney, you to be a lawyer. Okay. Um, but I still studied uh, human and child development and human communication studies when I was in undergrad. At which Howard, is right? connected to learning. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. At Howard. Yeah. I would yes, went to Howard University undergrad. And um so when it was when I graduated, came back home to St. Louis, didn't have a job, didn't have anything to do. Um, and my mom, like she told other siblings of mine when they got out of college, go down to the Board of Education and get you a substitute job until your teaching job until you can find something else. So that's what I did. And um, they put me in a high school classroom. I loved it. I was teaching English. It was great. And then they moved me from middle school. I hated it. Um, didn't like that grade level at all. And um, I told them I didn't want to continue that assignment. And they said, well, the only thing we have left is an elementary school. And I was like, oh, no, not the babies. If I can't deal with school, it's like, I know I'm not going to do well with the babies. But I didn't have a choice. They sent me to a first grade classroom at Patrick Henry Elementary School in St. Louis Public School System. And I, I'll tell you, Tom, we're talking about just from a spiritual perspective, from the moment I walked into that space, I felt at home. Mm. I felt like this is me you know and it was so easy from day one to um, live exist do the things that i was responsible to do with kids um it was so natural for me it was like drinking water and i mm. caught the bug and uh, they gave me a long-term assignment in that classroom so i was there for the remaining of the school year the assistant principal said anthony you are an educator. I don't know who told you that you're not, but you are. <laughs> and, like, Dang it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And she was yeah. like, you need to get into a master's program and get certified. And I was like, okay. You know, I didn't really listen to her. But by this time, a friend of mine who I went to undergrad with, my best friend, had gotten into an MBA program at Clark Atlanta. In Atlanta, he was like, hey, let's go to Atlanta and live. And I was like, yay, let's go to Atlanta and live. <laughs> and but my mom was like, look, you can't do, you can't, you're not going to Atlanta unless you got a purpose. <laughs> so I applied to um, graduate school there and got into the early childhood uh, curriculum and instruction master's degree program there. And voila, that began, be, began my road down early childhood education. I had great teachers, great mentors, great experiences. You know, I didn't teach that long. I taught, before I went there, I taught um, a year and a half. And then when I went to Atlanta, I went into Head Start and went right into administration. 
But eventually I had to come back to St. Louis to help take care of my mom. By this time, my mom was ill. And I went back into the classroom and taught three more years before I went back into administration um, as the founding principal of City Academy. So that was my role. <laughs> it, it was only God could have planned something like that because that was not my intention. But yeah. Said, you know, this shall be so. And I believe because of the work that we're doing today. I think all of those experiences were important to do the things that we're doing today. And I know that the work that we're doing today is transformational work. It's not just being an educator. This is about transforming life Yeah. and a way of being. Um, but it took all of that to get me to here. Wow. Um, so how do you, <laughs> when we, when we first met, um, we met at a, I forgot the name of the place now. It was like a professional I network. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, blue collar broker. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a professional networking event. And I think we connected over talking about like HubSpot and CRMs yeah. <laughs> for right, business. Right. Um, yeah. But then you started talking about the work that you're doing. And then, um, so I know that the, you know, the influence of your mother as an educator and your father as a pastor, you know, there's like a deep spiritual rootedness to what you're doing. So can you speak to how that has informed this transformation process for you and then how you kind of carry that forward to the kids that you work with and, and really the systems that you're transforming. Sure. So um, I grew up in a family that was uh, centered in faith. So my dad and mom, and mostly my dad, because he set the course for the family. Sure. Um, he had three tenants. Um, love God first, then love for family, and then love for education. And he insisted that everything that we did reverberated around those three tenets. We were part of a faith-based community, and that faith-based community was Olivet Missionary Baptist Church. Um, and where is that again in the city? Well, Growing I mean, up, it's not in the city. <laughs> you're right. It's not in the city anymore. Okay. It started, well, when we were part of, when we started in that community, it was on Cass, Cass and Garrison. Um, and they moved from there to Del Mar and Skinker. Okay. And then from Del Mar and Skinker, now they're out on Halls Ferry Road. Okay. Um, and we still have family that's part of the community there. And that was a very close-knit community. That was a community of people who cared. That it was a community of lots of big families, lots of two-parent families that had like eight or nine kids. And some had more than that. And so everybody kind of grew up with the set of kids that were in your generation or of your age group. And um, it was a loving place. But one of the things that was really drummed into us in that setting as well was having a um, spiritual core, 
you know, believing that there was something bigger than you, believing that you had a connection to it, and that beyond anything else, you could rely on it. Mm. You could rely on it. And so one of the things that happened every Sunday in our worship service, we would sing this one song right before we had corporate prayer. The song was Only Believe. And that song has never left me. And the words were just repetitive. Only believe, only believe. All things are possible, only believe. Only believe, <laughs> only believe. All things are possible, only believe. And then it, the second stanza was, do you believe? Do you believe? All things are possible, do you believe? Then you ended with a resounding, yes, I believe. Yes, I believe. All things are possible. Yes, I believe. Which is why I think I came up with the believe the believe that word <laughs> uh, kind of resonated with me when I started the believe project. Yeah, so that wasn't necessarily an intentional connection. No. Oh, no. I, that was going to be my question. That was no. that based. Okay. No, I just think my spirit resonated with it. Yeah. You know, I think I was shaped in it at during all of my formative years. You know, because yeah. it was sung when I was a baby, all the way through. <laughs> right. Time, you know, I went off to college, and it was sung every Sunday. Every Sunday, they drill that into you, and um, and not it's just like that it's year. become like a mantra. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. All things are possible. Only believe. So I think from a spiritual perspective, um, that was important in terms of developing the character and the resolve that I have now. And I came from a family of, of parents who um, didn't let things get them down. And if they did, we didn't see it. Mm. So my dad, like I told you, had one job at Central Hardware the entire time I knew him. On a job. He got up 4 a.m. in the morning to have breakfast. My mom had to have a hot breakfast for him before he went off to work. He got in his car. He went to Central Hardware. He didn't return home until about 6 p.m. But he got up and did that every day to make sure that we had shelter, that we had utilities, the lights was on, the heat was on you know, to make sure that we had good clothes to wear and food to eat. That was a maintenance man. He got up and did that every day. And if he had challenges in life, and we know he did, he's human. Right. <laughs> yeah. We didn't see it, you sure. know. So I think what that taught me, just as a kid seeing that, is determination, consistency that you have a responsibility to get up every day and live. <laughs> you know, um, that that's your job is to get up every day and live. And what's really funny is I treated school just like that, like it was a job. Mm. I never really treated school like it was um, this wonderful place for learning. 
<laughs> it was more like it was my responsibility because my parents said get up every day go to school and learn so that's what i did which you know maybe isn't the worst thing in the world no. to instill in people even though we don't necessarily think of it that way but like yeah you know yeah. that that's just been a valuable gift yeah absolutely. even if even if it wasn't the most fun at the time perhaps yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> And then my mom was that really good balance to my dad when my dad was a very structured person. My mother was the caring one, mm. you know, who believed that every human being was God's child and every animal was God's animal. Mm. <laughs> you know? She was that kind of a person and um, she was the kind of person that brought children home, particularly the kids that was most in need. She was the person that collected clothes for the women who were single moms and needed clothes for their children. She eventually started her own home care uh, program at home, her own business around uh, a home daycare program, um, because she wanted to make sure that mothers who needed care for their kids had a place to take their kids that was safe. Um, she was known for that. Um, she was the person that always made sure there was extra food on the stove. So if somebody needed a plate, they could have a plate, you know. But she was also the person who would say to us when we were feeling out of sorts, remember who you are. Mm. You're God's child. And if you do your part, God will do the rest. You just do your part. And as long as you do that, I guarantee you, God will do the rest. And so I had these really strong faith belief systems. My parents reinforced it, and the faith community that I was part of, they reinforced it. You learn the more powerful Bible verses early, you know, as a kid. Um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We learned that in Sunday school. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, all the Philippians. Of yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All, all of those. Um, we be may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Mm. You know, scriptures like that. So they were all empowering. And they didn't just affect me like that. That affected all of my peers that way. And so when you are part of a community that builds that up in you early, then you can grow to be a transformational adult. Clearly. <laughs> so I'm looking at you. What was, um, what was your mom and dad, what was their names? What were their names? Mm -hmm. Reverend Sammy Lee Anthony Singer and Judy Bush Anthony, but she went by Judy B. Anthony, which is why I go by Julius B. Oh, and my B stands for Bernard. Yeah, I do that in honor of my mother. My mother had and dad had seven boys and one girl. And the story goes like this. She prayed for a girl every time and she just <laughs> did not give one. <laughs> Except for the second oldest child is a girl. And she just kept praying for another one. Oh, that's so funny. When it got down to my turn. She was like, okay, this is going to be a girl, and I'm going to name that baby Judy after herself. Um, so that didn't happen. So she gave me a name similar to hers. So instead of Judy, I am Julius. 
and she gave me a middle name that was the middle B that she used. Her B is for her maiden name. And then, of course, Anthony. So wow. I'm Julius B. Anthony. She's Judy B. Anthony. And honestly, I feel like the work that I do with young children is a continuation of her spirit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can hear that in the way you talk. It just, uh, I actually got kind of chills and almost teary-eyed when you were talking before about um, her as like an anchor of, of the community. Yeah. Yeah, yeah she wow. was that. And, um, and people still remember her for that. As a matter of fact, just today on Facebook, on social media, um, a young lady made a comment on a post that I had put on there about the, um, our children's show that we just started. And she said, I am so proud of you because your mom was proud of me. And your mom uh, supported me and my son when I had him at a young age. Um, and that was just so powerful to me that um, I am receiving the blessing from the blessed, from the way that my mother had blessed others. Yeah. And so because she blessed somebody else, I am reaping the benefit of that blessing. That's and then it, it's really powerful. And then you're channeling it because yes. it's really clear in how you talk about your mom that, um, you know, she believed, she looked at, at her children and the people in her community that you all, that you talked about and she saw what they could be. Yeah. And she held that vision for them with this total faith and confidence. And yes. so what's really, really powerful right now for me listening to you is how now that you've shared that story I can hear you are doing that in creating these spaces through the belief project for these kids now and yeah. and saying even if you can't read the thick books yet we're gonna put them there because you're gonna you're gonna read those one day you know yeah, and oh man it's just so powerful to hold that space for for people yeah. and for those kids yeah yeah, and, 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 and with the hope that that not only just transforms their life, but that they will push that love forward as well. Absolutely. Yeah. That become an adult, that they will remember that experience and pass that love. So, wow. Yeah. So I know that things have, you know, in the couple of years that I've known you, things have just exploded. Um, you know, I think one of the times that we grabbed coffee you were getting contacted by like NFL and NBA players who wanted to support it. And you've got a new show as that has continued to grow. I know that your own, um, how have you kind of nurtured that spiritual grounding while that, all that external growth is happening? That, that's a great question. Um, because at the beginning of this year, I decided to rejoin the faith community that I grew up in. <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, and it's because I felt a lack of community. Mm. I felt like um, I was living too insular of a life. Um, and I needed the love of community. Sometimes yeah. you just need people to love on you. 
<laughs> yeah, I'll Sometimes with I need that every day. <laughs> like, I, yeah. So, yeah, and outside of your professional life, you know, it's cool if you say yeah. I did something good or great. That's wonderful. But you want people to love you that know you. Yeah. Um. So the people, I'll, this is what I say about the people that know me and love me. They call me Bernard. They don't call me Julius. They call me by the name that they was I was known for as a kid in that place. So the mm. real people that know me, they know me as Bernard and they will love on me as Bernard. The people at school and professionally, they know me as Julius. And they might love me too, but they don't, it's not that, you know, Bernard love. Right. <laughs> <that> <laughs> I so, and I felt like I needed that. Yeah. So I rejoined that community and um, then the pandemic hit. <laughs> yeah, and we were well, told to isolate <laughs> and I know that you love to sing yeah and singing yeah. I'm also in our choir and yeah it's that's like the most risky thing you can do is to like project your particles out into the yeah. air so yeah. yeah exactly so and I have rejoined the praise team at church yeah. in that community but all of that stopped and um so I started maybe after three weeks of eating Chippehoys every day. Mm. <laughs> and, that was and, how you coped? Yes. Yeah. I was eating Chippehoys and uh, Ben and Jerry's Chunky Monkey and <laughs> New York Fudge. And, oh, I was having a ball. And um, I knew I couldn't continue that. So I decided that I would start walking. So I started getting up. Um, to be out and walking at 6 a.m. We live across from Tyrell Park. And um, I allowed that to be my time with God. Awesome. My meditation time. So I will either listen to a message that feeds me spiritually or just music because I love music. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a music, a, a song that's sung in church. It just has to be a song about love for me. And that feeds me. Um, and so I walk for two hours and I spend those two hours with just me and God. I listen to God. Um, I get my answers to situations, issues, problems. During those two hours, I intentionally ask God to speak to me mm. during that time. And that has given me great balance, while at the same time I've lost weight in the process. So hey, win-win. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> bless the Lord for that. I got a double, double blessing out of it. But the most important thing is just that meditation time. It has really done well for me, and I think it has um, helped me to move this mission, this purpose forward. That's how we got to the um, children's show, mm. is by yielding to God's voice during that quiet time and allowing God to speak to you. And then once God does, following through. Don't just listen, but do as the voice, spirit, motivates and instructs you to do. And so, and, and that's a personal sort of um, 
I don't want to say goal. I'm trying to figure that that's a personal intention, maybe of mine. A value, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. A value to do what God has spoken to me to do, even when it might not be popular, even when I don't totally understand it all myself. Because this children's show, I don't totally understand it. I've never started a children's show before. God said, do it. And we did it and we've gotten great response. But what next? You know, what do yeah. you do with it? You know, where is it supposed to go? How are you supposed to grow it? You know, I don't have any of those answers. So. But I love that. I love that. So, okay. I want to I come back, put a pin in that because that's really powerful. Um, but I want to I make sure that people heard what you said earlier. You get up and you walk for two hours every day. Yeah. <laughs> two hours. Yeah. Every day. That's Every incredible day. because I know how busy you are. I know how many <laughs> things you have going on. And I think it's, it's something that maybe some people feels like a barrier to getting into a spiritual or contemplative practice that I don't have time. And what I hear you saying is everything that you've done that might, people might look at externally that makes you successful in quotes mm -hmm. is grounded in that. And if you don't make that time, then you don't have that space to do what you just said is like your value, your highest value, which is to, to listen to what God wants you to do. Uh, I was thinking of my mother-in-law. She will often say, you know, if you ask God for guidance, you better have your running shoes on and be ready. <laughs> That's all right. And <laughs> my church would say that'll preach, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah please do, please do. Um, so then, but then the other thing I love about how you describe that, which is perfect for this space where by rooting yourself in your meditation or your walk or, you know, whatever you want to call it, prayer time, um, that is actually then the space where the, and the initiatives and the ideas start to emerge. And then you just kind of show up and also like, you don't have to have you clearly have a vision, right? I mean, you passionate about what kids can be and, and how literature can play a part in that. But like the nitty gritty details where the stress comes up, um, you're willing to step into that space without knowing exactly what to do next, but just show up and be like, all right, God, uh, this was your idea. So <laughs> you better bring the right people in or the right whatever. And, uh, and it's happening. It's just really powerful. So yeah. cool. Yeah. And and that that's exactly what happens. You know, somebody will call or someone will send me an email and say, Hey, I met this person who told me about you. And that's how the Believe Project came to be. You know, my goal was to I started St. Louis Black Authors as an event planning <laughs> organization. Oh, interesting. We, yeah, we were gonna have events to promote the work of local authors. So basically a place where we would have maybe book signings or book readings or something like that. Um, but the educator in me wouldn't let that be enough. So the Missouri History Museum invited me to be featured one summer as a children's author. And I did that. And then they said, hey, can you start doing some workshops with kids? We do a lot of homeschool families that come during the day. And I was like, oh, sure. You know, I never had a relationship with the Missouri History Museum. I sure. just followed what Spirit said to do. And that then 
uh, turned into me posting that stuff on social media and Scholastic reached out. That's how I got Scholastic. You know, they saw this event that I did at the Missouri History Museum. I thought I would get 60 families. We got 300. And Scholastic was like, oh, wait a minute. What's going on there in St. Louis? So they reached out for a meeting, got the meeting with them. They asked about growing our organization and supporting it financially. And my, my response was, no, I'm not interested in that because Scholastic has this reputation of not really supporting Black children's literature. Now, they were very honest in the first conversation and said, hey, we don't have a huge catalog, but we're trying to change that. Um, I wasn't convinced of that. And I was like, basically, no, I'm not interested in that kind of a relationship. Yeah. So they asked for a second meeting about a week or so later. I met with them again and they pitched this reading room idea. I was familiar with their reading room. That reading room was filled with a lot of level readers of books that didn't reflect Black children. And we have a mission. <laughs> Our mission is to use Black children's literature as the strategy. So um, I was like, no, I'm not interested in that. But I tell you what, let me pray over it. That's exactly what I said to the lady I met with. I said, let me pray about it and I'll get back with you. And I did. I went home and I prayed about it. And God gave me the Believe Project. I put it on paper. You know how the word says, write the vision and make it plain. And that's what I did. Wrote it. Asked for another meeting. I pitched it to them. And they said yes in that meeting. Wow. So, and that started that whole train. I was excited when they said yes. I posted it on social media. And then uh, someone from Nine Network said, hey, we like what this project is about. Can we meet with you? Met with Nine Network, they came on immediately. Then someone from IKEA on LinkedIn reached out and said, hey, we heard about your organization, can we meet? Met with them, told them I believe they came on board. So all of that is God. You just make yourself available, just like you said. Be available. Yeah. And allow spirit to flow. And that's not always easy to do, as you know. No, you have to stay in the un, in the unknowing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and which is so not my personality. <laughs> I don't think anybody's born with that. It's just a gift. <laughs> I don't know. Some people seem like they can just live like that. They don't really care. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They just go with the flow, and I'm just like, I don't, I don't get that. But when it comes to spirit, I'm, I guess I'm more willing, maybe because I do think that's a big part of it. I mean, yeah. you know, when centering prayer is kind of the tradition that I've taught most frequently. And we always say that the core of that practice is just saying yes. Yeah. It's consent over yeah. and over and over and over and over and yeah. over again. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what it has been. And it's just been a phenomenal experience. And, you know, it was almost like overnight. It was like, you know, at one point, nobody knew who you were locally. And now it seems like a whole lot of people know who you are. I think that they know who you are. Or they know you something. Know of, they know what you stand for, for sure. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. It just happened all of a sudden. So. Well, and I, I love to, you know, you hear people talk in like leadership development type spaces about the importance of like having your vision and your values clearly defined. 
Yeah. And I think sometimes that bec it becomes a platitude, um, mm -hmm. but it, but the, that story you told with Scholastic just really, I think makes the point because you knew, you knew what you wanted. Yeah. Even if you didn't know how. Yeah. And so they came and they pitched something to you and you were like, no, I'm not going to yeah. give up control of my, of this vision. Yeah. But then you held to it and yeah. then you flipped the script and they all ended up coming to you. Yeah. And being like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Let's do that. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. And, that's, and I never thought about it like that, but you're right. That was all I had. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was just a vision and a conviction. I didn't have a business plan or anything. I didn't have a business plan when I started. So I still don't have one. I've never yeah. said I've never done the analysis on the market group and I never done any of that stuff. Not that it's not important. It is important. No, but I'm not gonna say that it's not. But, well the oh sorry. Make no, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, just there's a line that gets tossed around in like organizational development, and it's um, culture eats strategy for lunch. Okay. So it's like yeah. you could have the best like plan from leadership in the world, but if yeah. your organizational culture doesn't support it, it's going to fail. Yeah. And I was thinking of the analogy here in your example is that passion eats yeah. strategy for lunch. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And here's something to think about. Is there space for spirituality in business development? Well, if there's not, then my whole project is, <laughs> is doomed. But I've got a passion for that. Yeah, but because here's the thing. We don't value that. You know, when you're in your business leadership classes, no one says, you know, um, either do the business plan or follow your spirit. Yeah, <laughs> no I know. One well, tells you to do that. Or we think, I think sometimes, maybe directly or indirectly, the way we're educated, we're told either follow your business plan or follow your spirit and be broke. Or, <laughs> right. You know, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But the reality is what I think a lot of, people are discovering and, and this is really what drives a lot of what I do is like why don't divide yourself like that be right. integrate the fullness of who you are yeah. and that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that you go out there and like you know wear your faith on your sleeve and try to convert people it just yeah. means you bring that fullness of who you are into yeah. the work that you do yeah. yeah yeah it's about being authentically you honestly, be your authentic self, your real self. And I think that in this age, that is what people are crying out for. Yeah. So in this whole movement around equity and what matters, what has value, there is huge discourse around this idea of being woke. Mm -hmm. And all that simply means is, in part, being really you. And the whole uh, early literacy world and adolescent literacy. Now we're talking about having authentic voices. <laughs> Basically meaning that Everybody has a voice in that space. And so we need books that reflect 
all children in terms of their culture, their race, their experiences, and that the story should be an authentic voice. So you don't take a white author who writes a book about just any child experience and then in the pictures give it a black face and say that's black children's literature. Mm. Because that's what the industry does. And so now we're saying that's not authentic voice. Yeah. And so if we're going to have a picture book that reflects black children, then the story, the author, should be writing something from what they know. <laughs> yeah. You know, so yeah, we're now in this age where we're talking about being fully you, living your truth, you know, being fully yourself. We're talking about the LGBTQ community, you know, all the various uh, parts of who we are. It's about authenticity. And I think that's what really rules, even in business. Yeah. Showing up as the true you. So the other piece too, that I think we're in a moment of awareness that, that relates to the being woke as sort of waking up to who you really are. Yeah. There's, there's also a little bit of, um, well, not a little bit. There's a, there's a lot of effort required to also be aware of what the context is that you're awakening in. Sure and the systemic inequities that are a part of that. And, sure. and um, so it's kind of a both and. And I, I'm wondering, some people, um, so I'll speak particularly from the, the white perspective, um, you know, some people can feel threatened by bringing in those authentic voices, even though it's like, we're several hundred years overdue for doing that and it needs to happen. But what would you say to people who might feel threatened by that or feel like, um, I don't know. I, I think ultimately where I stand spiritually, none of, none of that is threatening because if we stand in a space of equal humanity, this, this isn't a zero sum game. Like if we start listening to, black and colored voices in our culture that doesn't mean that that white people no longer have a voice right it just means that we make it more representative of who we actually are um but i think a lot of people feel threatened or a lot of fear around that so i don't know have you i would imagine people have challenged you or put you on the spot how do you respond to that so this is what i understand that we should expect white people to feel threatened. Mm. We should expect them to feel huge senses of fear because we are socialized in a society that's built around white supremacy. And white supremacy suggests that the only normal context of the world should be seen through the prism of a white person. Anything other than that is cognitive dis dissonance. Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> so why are we surprised at that? Now, can we get through that and get over that? Yes, we can. There are avenues to do that, but you know, we can't pass out because a white person says, I feel threatened. 
Yeah. <laughs> Certainly real. not. No, I'm, I'm like, that's normal. <laughs> you, that just means you are a normal human being. Because all of your socialization has said your whole existence is normal. That everything about your being, your just living, is what everybody should be. Not only should be, has to be. Yeah. If you're going to be this loving, you know, giving, thriving being, then your whole existence has to match and mirror whiteness. So the first thing is we should not be surprised. And once we can get over that, then we can get to the next part <laughs> and, and begin to look at ways to try to help them to understand why, um, how white supremacy operates. Yeah. To me, that's the best pathway. Not pushing the black voice on them, or you got to listen to this black person, and, or this Asian person, or whomever. To me, for white people is they have to understand how white supremacy operates. And should they get that, then perhaps they might be more open to understanding the necessity of other voices, of what equality and equity really is all about. But they can't get there until they understand how they came to be. Well, and what I love about the wisdom and how you approach that is to just be like, yeah, the, expect this, like, right. like welcome it. Like, let's not pretend yeah. like this is a problem. Let's just say this is what's going to happen. Yes. And it probably needs to happen. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and then, but let's, let's just keep, keep moving forward because it's on the other side of that, that, that yes. there's real, there's exactly. real, there's real community. There's real collaboration that can happen. Yes. Yes. But it has to happen in a way that white people can get it. And I don't think that they always get it by just hearing the experiences of, some, of a black person. Yeah. Cause that's not their experience. And all they hear is, Oh, you're attacking me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, or, or, oh, you're that way because you didn't do what I did to have my thriving life. You should have done what I did and you'd be better <laughs> because that's how white supremacy operates. Right. There's only one pathway toward normal. And so that's the part that white people have to get. They have to get that and they can't really get that by hearing the um, dehumanizing stories necessarily of black people. So what the pandemic has done, it has helped to uncover that. Yeah. It's helped to show how white, white supremacy operates through the healthcare system through the police brutality, because now we have the, we got cameras 
<laughs> yeah, I know. It's like right there in our face. Yeah. And, and until white people get that, there's no real hearing of the real dehumanizing existence that a black person experiences. And black people experience that every day. Yeah. yeah. Because white supremacy suggests that you will never be enough. You will never be equal to me. You will never be normal. And remember, this country was founded on that concept. Yeah. Even though the Constitution said all men were created equal, that's not how the socialization of the country was formed. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, what white people have to do is get the truth about that. And we're not teaching the truth in school. Oh, yeah. In higher ed, K-12. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. I, um, I'm thinking about this in relation to um, some of the teachings that Thomas Keating talks about in the contemplative journey where he used when you start to um, let go of the constructed self or the false self, right? The socialized self, maybe that's the better way to put it. Cause it, uh, the socialized self that we've constructed that is in our, in our country, heavily informed by color and race, yes. whether we want to admit it or not. Yeah. But he says that the natural progression in a, in the contemplative journey is to recognize that, that, those social constructs are not fully real and that the true nature of who we are lies on beneath that. And we start to let go of parts of our personality, parts of our socialization and access something more, more human, more divine, more universal. And um, so I, it, as we're talking, I'm seeing how this moment in our culture um, can be if we engage it in the right way and that's the key right because if we just we, we need a mechanism to deal with the fear uh, because fear does not lead to good decisions <laughs> but if if we can if we can lean into it in that way and allow these realities to sort of deconstruct the narratives that we've built um, then we can start to live into a new narrative and a new a new community. Let me ask you something um, in terms of what you just shared by Keating. Um, you said something to the effect, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the socialization constructs, and I'm, I'm rephrasing what you said. That's okay, yeah, no, you're, um, you've got it. Aren't really real. Can you talk more about that part of it? What about it is not real? Yeah. I would say it's not the ultimate reality. Um, I like the way, I'll switch teachers here for a second. Uh, Ramdas calls it the relative re relatively real. Mm. So we have these identities and these personality traits, um, gender tropes, uh, you know, racial, whatever, that mm -hmm. we inherit from our culture. We, and we inherit them from our family too. Mm -hmm. uh, and we inherit both the good and the bad, and we're, we're born into that. That's human nature. Mm -hmm. um, some of that is like what I would call functional constructive beliefs, and some of it is not. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, 
And so part of my own journey over the last several years has been to, um, I think when you get really deep into a spiritual practice and you have that sense of, of union or communion with God, that, that is, that is not just like this private thing between me and this esoteric God, but is also union with everyone and everything. Mm-hmm. Well then if I'm having that experience and I'm authentically living out of that, then as I walk around in my day and my community and my relationships, um, I'm going to be more in tune to the fact that other people are living out of different realities. Mm-hmm. And so that starts to put me in the mindset of, I don't need to cling to this particular identity in order to feel secure in the world mm-hmm. because my security lies in this deeper, more, more real reality, ultimate reality, which is like what you were saying the sense it was instilled in you as a child mm-hmm. that you were going to be supported by your community, that God was always there mm-hmm. and that that was unconditional mm-hmm. no matter what. If you can have that, then it's a lot easier to let go of the honor and privilege that I have as a white person mm-hmm. um, and to not have to identify with that. And then if I'm not identified with it, I'm less afraid mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm less likely to be threatened by the changes that are required right now in our world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree with everything that you just shared. I still struggle with the term real. Okay. <laughs> Anyone experiencing whatever it is they're experiencing is real to them. Yeah, that's why some of the writings talk about the false self. And okay. I've always struggled with that because I think, yeah. well, to your point, it's, it's a person's experience. It's real to them in that yeah. moment. Yeah. So that's why I like, and, and maybe there's a better way that I'll come to, but right now in my thinking through this, I like Ramdas is calling it relatively real. Mm-hmm. It's not, these identities are, um, they're not the ultimate reality. They're not sort of me as created by God and, and mm-hmm. beloved and in communion with other people. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think I could embrace more. It's not the <laughs> only reality. Yeah. That you can have another experience and that too can be real. That's a good way to put it. Um, but when you are experiencing what you are experiencing at that moment, it feels really real to you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but that doesn't have to be your only experience that there's another experience that you can have yeah that's good it too can be real yeah an experience of feeling nothing but givingness and love and light and um and experiencing of seeing everyone as your equal and not as your enemy yeah that is that can be a reality for you too if you choose it you know wow so that's good stuff 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm appreciating your articulating that and even helping me think through that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, because I know, I think, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I think that um, many black people will hear that and say, well, wait a minute. What I experience is real. It feels real to me. Oh, oh, okay. That's it. Okay. Yeah. Now I see what you're getting at. Yes. Yeah. Well, so it's interesting because I was coming at it. I was thinking of it through the paradigm of sort of needing, needing to unlearn. Yeah my paradigm as yeah. as being told that that is the only reality i yes absolutely i get yeah that. yeah but, but no you're right that can easily be turned yeah as another if you say that back to you know a, to you or a, a person yeah. of color that can easily be a way of dismissing your yeah. experience absolutely. yeah that's and that's a really good point. You're dismissing the experience of the person who is white. Sure, yeah. You know, they are that way, I still believe, because they're socialized to be that way. Sure. And if you don't if no one introduces an alternative to you, then you know that is your real life experience. It is real. Yep. You know, no, no disparage to Keating. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, you're not. I've heard people. You're not the first person that's taken umbrage with that idea. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're, made, you're coming at it from a slightly different angle, but yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like what we learn in our faith that you know you can live this particular life not knowing some things but once you're offered something different yeah so the whole notion of christ offering you eternal life and salvation if you accept that and embrace that then your whole being your whole existence becomes different yeah that's a new reality whether you believe in that or not, I'm just using that as an example. Right. Oh, absolutely. The same absolutely. concept. Oof. Wow, this is good stuff. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to maybe to start bringing it. Um, I wanted to ask a question. Of, are there examples or stories that you have of, because you've been doing this for a while now, and I would imagine there are some kids that you maybe worked with in the early days who are grown up. And um, do you have stories of people who have kind of worked with the Believe Project and how they've been impacted? Or um, like I, when I came to the opening of that um, reading space at the Salvation Army, mm -hmm. um, I met this like 11-year-old kid who was in a suit who gave me his business card and had already published a, a children's book and um, like that really powerful stuff. So do you have some of those stories to kind of highlight the, the impact of the work you've done? Yeah. So that kid you met, his name is Mikey Wren. And Mikey, he's, yeah. 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 He's the author of the book, Biz is a Wiz. He's one of our St. Louis black authors. 
and he is the featured author in our second episode of the Believe Project, a literacy-based children's show. So um, you definitely got to see um, his episode and how we elevate his work. But and I will it, put a link to that in the show notes page for people listening that want to see your show that yeah. is on public television now. Yeah. Yeah. So there are lots of stories. And even though we just opened our first site this past fall, the first one was opened in September of 2019. So is that possible? I feel yeah. like I feel like this so has been going for longer. No, we yeah. haven't got through a full year. Wow. Okay. And that's what. And that's the. Um, that's how amazing God is. Now you know when we were at that um, opening, I had no clue about doing a children's show. That wasn't even in my mind or thinking or anything. Yeah. And here we are, just a few months later, and we're trying to create this remote learning experience, a full children's show, like a. Um, reading Rainbow meets Mr. Rogers, <laughs> you know, sort of situation. And uh -huh. so, yeah, um, but the story, getting back to the stories, the one that I'll share, and I know both of us probably, you know, can have other things to do. So, <laughs> so yeah, we can, think, we can move toward, I think ending <laughs> with a story would be great. Yeah. So this was the first story that had an impact on me in terms of the Believe Project spaces. The first one that was open was at the Ferguson Community Empowerment Center, the one that you, the launch that you had attended. And I'll just say for um, importance sake that we, the other three are Sister Thea Bowman Catholic School in East St. Louis, Glasgow Elementary School in Riverview Garden School District, and um, Old North Confluence Academy. So Major Gail Aho was the person that um, gave me my first yes for the Believe Project. This is a white, just retired um, female minister with Salvation Army, spirituality, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that story is really interesting and in how I met her. I basically attended a breakfast at Christian Hospital. The person sitting at my table um, had relationships with Salvation Army and their after school program. She connected me with the director at the after school program. I met with her to tell her about this idea that I had, which was the Relief Project. She stopped me and said, wait, you need to talk to Major Gale. Major Gale mm -hmm. came into the room. I told her about this project and these three partners, because at that time, I only had Scholastic, Nine Network, and IKEA. But it still wasn't a fully developed project. And Major Gale started, we started talking about the condition of Black children in literacy, and then she started citing people like Dr. Jawanza Kanjufu, who is like a classic theorist in Black thought. Mm. He wrote this book called The Conspiracy to Destroy Black Boys back in the 70s that was highly controversial, but very, very important work mm. <laughs> when it comes to Black thought and children learning. She was 
quoting people like Dr. Asa Hilliard, all these black theorists. And I was like, huh? That's <laughs> <laughs> a cognitive dissonance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, white female, just about ready to retire age. And she was dropping all of these black theorists on me, like, and telling me, what you're doing is important work. It's mm. powerful work. We are going to fund your first project. She gave me my first yes, my first yes. And I feel like she pushed believe into the atmosphere. I know I might've been a person who thought about it and all of that, but it doesn't come to life unless somebody says yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and I'll fund it. And so she did that. And I actually dedicated the first episode to her. But this is the story she said to me after the space had opened and the kids had seen it for the first time and it started going to the space. She, I went to visit her at the space and she said, Julius, I have to tell you something. When the children come to the Believe Project space, the very first thing they do is they take off their shoes. <laughs> they have decided among themselves. We didn't tell them to do that. They decided among themselves that we're going to take off our shoes because this is our new home. I just, started, I just bust out crying because for the first time, Tom, Believe became a reality to me. Oh. <laughs> It was such a powerful, it's almost like, you know, when um, the God told Moses, take off your shoes, this is holy ground. Yeah. It was in the mountains. It was that kind of aha for me. Wow. Because yeah. what it said to me was that what God has, had promised, it is so. God said, I want you to make something where children will totally feel and be themselves in an authentic way. And that one act, that one decision of we'll take off our shoes because this is our new home, was the manifestation of God's promise. Mm. So that's the story. I share and will end on. We are manifesting God's promise. And just to play, continue that metaphor, because we are standing on holy ground, <laughs> yeah. taking off our shoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely. What an absolute honor and privilege it is to, to know you and have this conversation and share it um, thank you for, for being here and for showing up and for, for all that you're doing and even challenging thank me. And everybody for thank you for inviting me. Have you this here has been wonderful. This and hope that you enjoyed this interview with Julius Anthony. Again, you can learn more about Julius and all the incredible love he is pouring out into the world on the show notes page at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 29. That's the word episode and then two nine with no spaces. While you're there, I'll put a link as well to his website for the Believe Project at stlblackauthors.com. 
and you might want to check that out. And some of you may even be so moved by the work that he's doing that you would want to support him. And there's information right on his page about how you can support him through donations or other ways. So I definitely encourage you to check that out. And I will also put a link up to the episodes of The Believe Project, his new children's literacy show, which are available on YouTube. So you can check them out wherever you are. Again, a quick reminder and invitation to join our free Facebook group called The Centered and Purposeful Leader. Again, you will get access to videos. I do some Facebook Lives, uh, posts and inspiration, and probably most importantly, supportive community with other people really trying to stay centered in their why and purpose and live out of that contemplative, compassionate space in the world. Again, I will put a link to that group where you can request to join right in the show notes page, or you can also go straight to thomasjbushlack.com forward slash Facebook group, just one word with no spaces. As I was thinking about some parting thoughts to share with you at the end of this episode, for some reason, two Teresas, two St. Teresas popped into my mind. The first was St. Therese, Therese, I guess in French, Therese of Lisieux. As, as well as St. Mother Teresa of Kolkata. And both of them really exemplified this idea of doing the small and the little things of our lives with great love. Uh, St. Therese of Lisieux called this the little way of following God's will with great love in the little things in life. So here's a quote from St. Therese of Lisieux. She says, The splendor of the rose and the whiteness of the lily do not rob the little violet of its scent, nor the daisy of its simple charm. If every tiny flower wanted to be a rose, spring would lose its loveliness. And I love that quote for encouraging us all simply to flower into the people we are created and made to be and not to get caught up in the pressure to be something else or something more. And then the famous line that many of you have probably heard from St. Mother Teresa, she says, we cannot all do great things, but we can do small things with great love. Now, with total love and respect to St. Mother Teresa, I might modify that idea that we cannot all do great things, uh, but perhaps put it in, in the sense of we might not all be called to do huge public great things. But we can all do great things when we bring that great love into the small things of our daily life. I agree with her in principle. I just might modify it a little bit. So I'll leave you with those two thoughts by two St. Teresas. And until next time, I hope you are inspired by Julius and others to live in that space, that sweet spot where your contemplative practice centers you so that you can do the small things you are called to do with great love and then stand back and be amazed as those acts come to fruition by a power greater than ourselves. Thanks so much for listening and I'll look forward to seeing you in our Facebook group, The Centered and Purposeful Leader, and to checking in with you on our next episode. Thanks again and may you find that peace and joy in doing the small things with great love. Thank you.